Okay, Acts today, Acts 10, uh, 44 through 11, 18 is what we'll be looking at. And we'll be finishing up this great story of the gospel going to Cornelius and to the Gentiles in this uh, major, really epic in uh, the course of the life of, of God's people. Um, so let's go to God in prayer as we seek his wisdom from his word this morning. <clears throat> Father, as we read in the creed this morning, we confess with uh, everyone, every believer, every man, woman, and child from around the world, from history past, from as far into the future as you see fit before sending your Son. Our minds can't contain, our hearts can't feel, our lips can't express the praise that's appropriate for your glorious grace to us. You have saved us, you have assembled us into a nation, a kingdom of sons and daughters who proclaim your excellency. Lord, we have tasted your goodness. May we long for pure spiritual milk that we may grow up into salvation. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please stand for the reading of the word if you're able. Acts 10 through 11, 1044 through 1118. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise God. You may be seated. You may have shared this before, but when I was a teenager, I went to Orange City, Iowa for basketball camp with my friend Eric. And at camp, they give you t-shirts, you know, and they gave us a red t-shirt, basketball player on the front, Red Raiders was their, their mascot on the, on the back said, uh, there was a quote that always kind of stuck with me. We've all heard it before, but begin with the end in mind, begin with the end in mind. Uh, philosophers and theologians would use a fancy word. They call it teleology, the study of the ultimate purpose of things. It comes from the word telos in the Greek, which means end or purpose. What is the telos? That's what I want to talk about today, the end that we have in mind. As I was writing this introduction, Zoe was sitting in my office and I asked her, Zoe, why do we go to church in her kind of shy way, like, why are you asking me this, Dad? She, she said, because it praises God. It's a good answer. In fact, it's better than one I thought she might give, which also would have been a good answer, but not the ultimate answer, which is to learn about God. Uh, Dr. Godfrey said in something I was listening to recently, he said, preaching that appears to be fairly good can descend into just instruction. And he quoted a historian who said, uh, the besetting reformed sin is to turn the sanctuary into a schoolhouse. He, and he said, there's a difference between instruction and carrying the message of God into the lives and hearts and minds of God's people. So the purpose of preaching, by preaching I mean preaching in the broadest possible sense, everything from the great preachers of our day and history past to what I do on Sunday mornings to what missionaries do in the field um, to street evangelists to what each of us does when we open our mouths before our friends, our family, and our neighbors. Um, Preaching in the most broad sense, the purpose of preaching, of proclaiming God's word, The end in mind, the telos of that is the praise of the glorious grace of God and the communion with God and with his saints. That's God's ultimate purpose, the praise of God's glorious grace and communion with him and with each other. Um, In our day, missiology or the study of missions, or or you've heard these terminologies, being a church on mission, developing missional culture. These terms have been abused and overplayed. Perhaps you're not even aware of that, but I am, and I I sometimes guard against it and let the pendulum swing too far, and I need to repent because I sometimes toss the baby out with the bathwater. Because the Great Commission, beyond praise and fellowship, is the church's most important calling. That's what we're here for, the Great Commission. We are to be a missionary outpost. 
Now, the problems arise either when we are so concerned about the telos, the end in mind, that we lose sight of the mission. In other words, we just say, we're only here to praise God. And we have no need for to be outward facing or to reach out to the unbelieving world. Right? That's one side, one problem we can fall into. Um, the other problem is the opposite, that we can become so focused on mission that we think that's the end goal. That just reaching people is the end goal and we forget the ultimate mission is the praise of God's glorious grace. I think John Piper is the best at helping us understand this balance. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. I like that line. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. He goes on to say, Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. But then worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will sing and praise Sing praise to thy name, O Most High. So you see what he's saying there, that missions is not ultimate. Worship is. But uh, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. So today I want to direct our attention to primarily the work of God in this passage in hopes that, number one, it will inspire our own heartfelt praise to God. And two, it will motivate us to more heartily engage in the work of the Great Commission in our own community, uh, in our own country, in our world, as God has gifted and enabled us. Uh, so I have three points, my main points this morning. God's means, God's works, and God's glory. God's means, God's works, and God's glory. So let's begin by looking at God's means of salvation, the way that he operates uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. I wonder what's your immediate reaction if I say it's your job to make disciples. Well, I can't do that, right? I can't make a disciple. God makes a disciple. And yet it's striking that's what Jesus commands in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now we're right to say only God can save a soul and enable him or her to follow Christ. And yet... We are called to be engaged in the disciple-making process. The church is a disciple-making factory. It makes disciples who makes disciples who make disciples. All the while recognizing it's God who gives the growth. I mean, that's how our bodies grow, isn't it? God creates our bodies, and yet, how are our bodies formed? What are the means by which that God does that? Cells replicate and split and multiplies cells, beget cells, beget cells. 
all through the praise of God's creative power. So when we magnify the name of God for his saving work, we do so not as spectators, but as participants. All through the praise of God's glorious grace. The question then is, what are God's chosen means of working salvation in his people and through his people to the praise of his grace? How has he chosen to accomplish this mission? Um, And it's a drum I beat every week and one I'll continue to bang until I die. God accomplishes salvation in his people through his ordinary means of grace. Through the word proclaimed, through the sacraments and through prayer. That's the primary way God has chosen to work. It's not at all incidental then that all three means of grace are present here in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Looking at verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, so you remember he was preaching a sermon and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He was preaching the gospel. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. While Peter was preaching the word, as we saw last week, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. Now, parts of this event are uh, paradigmatic, normative for us, and parts are not, because this was a unique event in redemptive history. Um, it's, you know, we don't expect the Holy Spirit to fall on us in the same way that it did that day for Cornelius and his family. It is a uniquely devised event by Christ as a public demonstration of the ingrafting of the Gentiles into the church. But what is clearly normative here for us is the power of the word. The power of the word is normative for us, together with the power of the spirit to bring life and repentance. Um, Listener, read with me these additional descriptions of the events that took place and hear how they speak about them. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Notice the emphasis there in Luke. Not that they had had an extraordinary experience with an angel or a holy, the Holy Spirit. They had received the word of God. That's how he describes what happened to them. And then in verse 13 of 11, And Cornelius told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. You see, the word is the means of grace there. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. And then we see the fruit of that in verse 18, at the end of 18. But then to the Gentiles also God has granted Repentance that leads to life. So repentance comes from the power of the Spirit working through the Word preached by men. So let's not forget the power of the Word together with the Spirit. Um, God's words are working words. As He spoke creation into existence, so His Word has creative power to recreate human souls. We read as much in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The second means of grace that we see here is the sacrament. In this case, the sacrament of baptism. 
I mean, in this instance, again, the Spirit put on a show, a display of His presence as a demonstration of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the progress of the Great Commission. Uh, But in 45 of chapter 10, we read, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Um, so the Spirit coming here is, is proof to Peter that these Gentiles were every bit a part of the church as they were at Pentecost. They are engrafted. They are brought in. God has worked powerfully in these people in the same way He worked in us. So then he asks, who can withhold from these people baptism, the water of baptism? It's extraordinary, isn't it, that these Gentiles would receive the mark of Jesus Christ and so identify themselves and be included among his family. They receive this mark of the new covenant, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, just as much as as Peter did or, or any of the others have. This baptism here, specifically, it preaches the universality of the gospel message. Anyone who believes is made part of Christ's family, signified, sealed, as God's adopted sons and daughters. So he commands, he says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Uh, That little note there at the end is actually quite important. Um, No Jew would remain with any Gentile for any days. And now all of a sudden these people are engrafted into the covenant community and Peter spends days with these Gentiles. They asked him to stay for some days. Just 24 to 48 hours earlier, he, had, he, he wouldn't have done that. But now in this past period, he's hosted Gentiles at Simon the Tanner's house. He's traveled with Gentiles. He's entered the home of Gentiles. Now he accepts the invitation to stay with them and presumably to eat with them. It's a remarkable change. And by this, I want us to see the powerful connection between belief in the Spirit and baptism. That we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're all united into one family, Jew and Gentile. Christ is building for himself a community, a family. Uh, Before we move on from God's means, we can't bypass prayer as a means of grace. Uh, I don't think it's coincidental that just as the disciples were engaged in prayer right before Pentecost, now these two men, Peter and Cornelius, were praying when they received their revelations from God. As Peter recounts in verse 5 of 11, And I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending. So we can't underestimate the power of prayer in God's economy. Uh, Just as he works through the hearts of men, but does so mediated through the word preached by other men, so he works out his purposes through prayer. He obviously doesn't need our prayers, but he works his purposes through prayer. So the point here is that if we want to see God at work, Through us, as we endeavor to be faithful to the call to make disciples, we need to commit and recommit ourselves to the basics. As Michael likes to say, you can't fall off the floor. To the means of grace. We have to recommit ourselves to the means of grace. 
to the word preached. I mean, proclaimed, yes, from the pulpit, but also in big and small ways in our daily lives. As faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, so I believe true faith grows by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So discipleship is teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. It's not just a one, one and done thing, right? We understand that. But teaching them to obey all, obey all that I've commanded, this growing, this obedience comes by the word. So we need to massage the word of God into our own soul so that, as Spurgeon said of Bunyan, wherever anyone pricks us, we, we bleed biblene. We must also commit ourselves to the sacraments. I know you can't administer baptism or communion to yourself at home. These are corporate activities which shows that the corporate expressions of faith are imperative and indispensable. But what you can do at home weekly is as you come to the Lord's table for nourishment in the body and blood of Christ, you do so for your daily struggle with your flesh throughout the week. It's there to nourish you throughout the week. Likewise, you can recall your baptism as Luther did. When you feel the accusations of the devil, you're not good enough for Christ. You say, like Luther, I am baptized. I am baptized. Not that baptism in itself is some kind of solace. Like, oh, I had a magical experience at Bible camp and then got baptized, so I'm a Christian and now I'm good. Um, But when the devil comes and accuses you, you can throw your baptism in his face. You can say, I am in Christ. I am united to Him. I have received God's covenant sign and seal. Say what you will about me, but you cannot tarnish the righteousness I have in Christ. And then prayer. We cannot neglect prayer. To pray fervently for those with whom we are in conversation. To pray fervently for your pastor, that he may be clear, which is how he ought to speak, which is what Paul says in Colossians 4. To pray fervently for the brethren around the world, um, not just for protection and blessing. You know, I think of uh, the Pikes who are in Kiev right now. They're missionaries. Of course, we pray for their protection and, and all that's going on, but also pray for the advancement of the gospel. What great opportunities will arise from these events? I do think that's primary. We pray for them. So these are the things in which we are to be engaged, actively working, daily working, making the hub and priority of our lives out of which everything else flows. Not because they're the most important thing, but because they lead us to the most important thing, to the Lord. They lead us to the telos of our lives, to worship and communion with God. So that's God's means. Uh, but make no mistakes that as we work in the means God has given us, as we labor in these things, it's not ultimately we who work, but it's God who works in and through us. These are God's means and they are God's works. And that's the second point, God's work. Um, we see here again in this passage, we see God's hand, his active guidance in the events of history uh, throughout this chapter and throughout Acts. As I've said, I think primarily Acts is not the acts of the apostles or even the acts of the Holy Spirit, but the acts of the risen Christ as he expands his church over the earth. earth. So when uh, 
Peter is accused when they say in verse 2 of 11, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party uh, criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter's response here is essentially, uh, It wasn't me. It was God. he, He even goes as far as to say, I told God, I, no way. I've never let any unclean thing come into my mouth. Right? This was all of God. And Cornelius too, he had an angel visit him. So it's not like Peter and Cornelius kind of met at the local bar and, and said, let's go back to Cornelius's for pulled pork sandwiches. <laughs> this was orchestrated and, and uh, governed by God. He was choreographed by his uh, divine hand. That's the only explanation Peter could have given that was of any value. I just wonder if the story of Jonah may have flashed through his mind. Jonah was also called to an uncomfortable situation where he was to bring a message of peace to Gentiles. Uh, Peter caught on a little bit more quickly than Jonah did. He went. He followed God's leading. He realized it's a fool's errand to resist God. And that, that's the whole point of Peter's defense as summarized in verse 17, where he says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I was going to stand in God's way? This whole thing, God is doing it. And he's still doing it. He's still about the same mission and he's still working. Uh, we were just commenting this morning about how much we love the Bible. <laughs> One of the reasons we love the Bible so much is we always want to know the will of God for our lives. Our problem is we always want to peek behind the curtain and see the secret hidden will of God for our lives. Like, uh, what should my vocation be? Whom shall I marry? Where shall I live? What will happen to my kids or my grandkids? And there's a reason we call that the hidden will of God, is that it's hidden. But what a rich gift we have that the thoughts of God about the telos of the universe are written in a bound paper book for us to read. We know the will of God. We know the telos. We know the end game. I think this is especially helpful as many of you are older, but even if you're younger, but as you engage with your kids or grandkids, people who are trying to figure out their lives, the purpose of their lives, and really this is the tr- truth we all need to preach to ourselves. But beyond giving them a clear understanding of the gospel itself, I don't know if we can do anything better for them than to teach them whatever work you choose, whatever, wherever you choose to live, whomever you marry, you do it all with the end in mind. You do it all to the glory of God. The telos of God frames our work in light of God's work. You understand that principle? The telos, the end game of God, frames our work in light of His work. So whatever life details may have us befuddled at any given moment of our lives, uh, here are some things we know for sure. We know we can throw ourselves fully, without hesitation, upon God's means of grace. That's the will of God for our lives. We know for sure that Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
We know for sure that God has created us to live in fellowship with Him and with each other. We know for sure that God created us to fill the earth, to multiply and to exercise dominion in the earth. We know that we've been given a commission, a great commission by Christ. We know for sure that Christ is building for Himself from sinful fallen men a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, so that we may proclaim His excellencies. We know for sure that Christ will come again and bring with Him an inheritance for us. We know a lot. Suddenly, where I work doesn't seem so important in light of the things that we do know, right? We know the will of God. We could go on like that for a long time. My point is, we know God's marvelous grace. We know a whole heap about what God is up to in the world. And astonishingly, He has told us the telos, the end in mind that He has for creation and redemption. That telos needs to be the driving force of our lives. Uh, wherever, wherever it's not, that, there's a misfire in our engine. So not only do we know the ends, but we know the means. We know for certain God's hand is living and active in those means. And it's His ends, His means, all His work. And we're a part of it to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. That's where I want to leave us. Um, the ultimate end is the praise of God's glorious grace. We've seen God's means, we've seen God's work, and now we see God's glory. Uh, Turn over to Ephesians 1. I I can't do any better in showing you the ultimate purpose of God than to have you go to Ephesians 1 with me. Ephesians 1, starting verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we are. He's already stolen God. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, my problems seem a little small after I read that. He's blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are the blessings? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless in Him before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. Now, do we have more blessings here in Ephesians 1? Continue in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? Again, according to the riches of His grace. And yet there are more blessings here, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. Why? Once again, according to to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now you want to hear more about your blessings, right? In Ephesians 1, because there's more. In verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having predestined been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things to the counsel of his will. Once again, why in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then there's even more blessing in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. So, so there it is all laid out for us. Uh, Paul's not very American here, is he? He's telling us the purpose of our existence. We define the purpose of our existence. We decide what makes us, us. We determine the course of our destiny, right? No, we don't. After hearing God's plans, my plans don't have very much appeal, honestly. So you see it here in this passage, don't you? Uh, the the this passage is not ultimately about uh, speaking in tongues or baptism or church squabbles or even ultimately about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, um, though it is about those things and they're important. This passage is ultimately about the praise of God's glorious grace. You see it in both chapter 10 and 11. If you go back to 10, um, beginning in 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues. I think our mind gets caught on that and we don't read this next phrase and extolling God. Gentiles extolling God. Missions exist because worship does not. The end of missions is not missions, it's worship. They were extolling God. And then again in uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, remember this is opposition, when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified God. They glorified God, saying, to then, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And they glorified God. Jews and Gentiles glorifying God here. So I think the exhortation is twofold. Uh, first, may we be a people who extol God, who rejoice in the God of our own salvation. And then, may we be a people who, who glorify God when we see His mighty hand at work, granting repentance unto life to those around us. Whether it be in our church, our valley, around the world, we begin with that end in mind. Participate in God's means, observe God at work, to the praise of God's glorious grace. I want to close with a, a prayer of praise from Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to you, O Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made us glad by your work. 
At the works of your hands we sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. Amen.